Hello, everyone. This is the new episode of Bytan's podcast series, Tech Founders Talk. I'm your host, Yuri, and today we have a very special guest, Toby Anwin. Toby is a tech entrepreneur, writer, co-founder, and CIO at Premonition Analytics. Hi, Toby. It's great to have you here today. It's good to be here. Thanks very much for inviting me. Yeah, so actually the first question is about uh, Premonition. Well, it is the artificial intelligence system that tracks attorney wins and losses, generating their ratings against judges. How you come up with this idea? Well, once upon a time, I got sued a lot, and it really pissed me off. Uh, <laughs> I have hired dozens of lawyers in my life. I, I've been sued for things like not having an elevator in a one-story shopping center. That I oh, own. wow. <laughs> uh, yeah, in America, there's no loser pays rule. So I can sue you for anything frivolous. And if I lose, I don't have to pay your lawyer's fees. So it's a, a massive incentive for all kinds of frivolous uh, litigation. And I found that often I would hire a lawyer that actually wasn't terribly good. But uh, we're on all these best lawyer lists and uh, recommended by a friend or something like that, the kind of standard ways that you most people historically have chosen lawyers you know they went to a would they quote good firm or or whatever mm -hmm. and uh, i since know that most of these things have zero uh, correlation as to how good lawyers actually are and essentially every lawyer award or rating out there is pay to play uh, i'm not aware of any ones that are merit-based that are actually free. So it's it's a very screwed up system. And after a while, it occurred to me, well, this is a data problem. If I can find out which, like, if I can get hold of case data, then I can crunch a bunch of it. And then it's just a simple query to say, okay, for this judge, for this case type, who's there the most and has the best results? And it's a, it's a fairly simple idea, but doing it was, dramatically uh, harder. Uh, a lot of people have tried and, and most of them failed. Uh, there's probably about 80 legal analytics companies now, but the difficult part is getting hold of the data. So two biggest after us have 2% of core coverage. Uh, mm -hmm. We have 87 and we're in 12 countries. So we're bigger than all the rest of them combined now. Okay, yeah, and... Actually, you're speaking about like your competitors who have like only two percent, and you're like having eighty-seven. And how how come? What what is your advantage? It's technology. It's uh, mindset. What what is your strong part? Well, initially it was mindset because we didn't do any product research, any market research at all. I just I felt I could do it, and I thought it would be useful, so I went and did it. And we were talking with a competitor of ours um, two, two, maybe three, uh, two years afterwards and uh, said, you know, thanks very much for all the nice things you say about us in public because, you know, you never want to trash your competitors. It makes you look bad. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, uh, we really appreciate it. And uh, Nathan, our sales guy, said, well, you know, what, what, what do you tell people when, uh, when they ask about us? And he said, well, you know, I say it would all be wonderful if it was true, <laughs> but um, 
he said, we know it can't be true because we tried it and we couldn't get it to work. So therefore it's impossible. And for the first couple of years, there were just massive amounts of skepticism. People did not think that we mm-hmm. had, them. they just thought it was bullshit. Uh, and we'd have these meetings and, uh, you know, I'd be on the phone with people and they'd say, you know, send me first thousand cases of this court, send me the today's last thousand of this court, and this one, and this one, and this one. And they kept doing it. And I kept sending it over and off while they're like, ah, maybe they do actually have what they <laughs> say they had. And, you know, now all the big guys have been around our offices and kicked the tires enough times. Everybody, everybody's aware that we have this and we have more than everybody else, but uh, skepticism was was huge and I didn't know that supposedly it couldn't be done. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's like that, uh, it was Roger Bannister with the, um, was it the six minute mile and um, it was supposed to be impossible, but after he did it, lots of people came and, and did it and uh, no one's uh, since been able to do the level that we've done, but we've shown that it can be done. Mm-hmm. Okay, and if you talk in terms of technology, what was kind of the hardest part to do? Uh, what was something that when you achieved it, everything went okay after that? It was getting the data in the first place. Because I always thought, you know, you see on TV, on a cop show or something like that, there's this magical database of up in the sky that has all information about everybody and you can just do a background that's bullshit um doesn't exist I, i went down to the law library and i started looking for cases of someone i was interested in couldn't find it but i knew there must be some and these are complicated systems to use and i went through law school with not using LexisNexis. uh i would just put a case into wikipedia and if it didn't come up well it can't be an important one so i wouldn't bother learning it because I just wanted to kind of skim through quickly and, and get a quick pass. So I started looking for cases that I'd been in, and I couldn't find those either. And then I thought, well, you know, this just must be because I'm stupid. And let me find, let me look for a case that has to be there. So I searched for State of Florida versus Casey Anthony, which was like the case at the time, front page newspaper for three years. Mm-hmm. Not there. And I, I called over the law librarian who, who now works for me. And I, I said, why can't I find this Casey Anthony case? He said, it's not important. Hannah, it's front page of the papers for three years. Somebody died. How is it not important? He said, because there was no appeal. So therefore there's no new legal precedent set, which is what these systems are based around. And therefore it's not important from a evolution of law perspective. I said, okay, if I want to find this case, how do I do it? So it's easy. You go to the courthouse and they have it there and they have a website. So, okay, what if I don't know what courthouse it's in? So, well, that's easy too. You go to the courthouse, it was not there. You go to the next courthouse, it was not there. You go to the next one. So, okay, how many courthouses are there in America? And he didn't know. And we're experts at this and we still don't know. I can tell you there's 3,124 circuit courts and they're not connected. Mm-hmm. You do something naughty down in Miami, they have no idea up in Orlando. So, okay. And I'm like a red rag with a ball for this thing now. I have to get it done. So I go to the 
courthouse and I said, can I have your data, please? And they said, no. <laughs> now, wait a minute. This is public record and you are a public servant. So let me ask you again, can I have your data, please? And they said, no. <laughs> no. After a bit of arm twisting, I got a CD out of them a couple of weeks later for $75. It had 2,000 cases on it you know, out of 38,000 in a year. Loaded up on the computer and I said, where are the dispositions, the end results of the cases? So we don't keep track of that. So, okay, so you have trials and things at your courthouse, but you don't keep a record of what the result was of the trial. She's like, no, okay. And I know she's lying to me because I can see it on the website. I was like, oh, I just got to get it from a website into the computer. Well, I, I know about web scrapers, so I'll just build a web scraper to do this. Just out of pure luck, Orange County, Florida, was one of the easiest court websites in the country to scrape. Most people usually start with New York, which is one of the hardest. Now Orlando is one of the most challenging ones. I bumped into a clerk of court and he said, oh, I see you don't scrape our site anymore. I said, yeah, we do. <laughs> Just they can't see it. Um, so, you know, then we started adding more and more and more courts. Uh, and then, you know, as you're getting towards the end, some of them get very difficult. Um, they have all kinds of ways to find if you're a bot and stop you scraping and, uh, you know, you get around them and then there'll be a, someone who figures you've got around it and tries to stop you. And uh, there's 16 different ways, basically, to tell if someone is a bot. And if you know what those 16 are, you can get around. Uh, so it's actually been quite good because the, the courts become harder and harder to scrape every day. And, you know, we have we scrape thousands of them every hour in 12 countries and it's kind of like a, a barrier to entry for us uh, a few years ago one of my developers said oh we just got banned from australia so that's cool so why is that cool because so, we'll have figured out how to get around it by the end of the afternoon but no one else will and um you know a few months later one of our main competitors out there very sheepishly called up and said can we buy data from you and now they buy data from us uh, so it's it's a kind of nice ever winding moat. Uh, so the, the web scraping was the really challenging bit. <laughs> okay, I see. That's a great story, actually. My next question is not about the technology, but rather about people, because technology is great, but you always have to have a great team to to make it work. How long did it take for you to build this core team for premonition? Um, to kind of get together the people we've had now probably about two years i got you know we we went through quite a few people initially uh mm -hmm. and just in pure luck i got this guy on elance uh which is now upwork mm -hmm. and i had no money at the time and i found it i paid for the software by selling one of my watches and and he was cheapest and uh I hired him and I said, build a crawler out of Java because I, at the time, thought, well, Java can run on anything, so that's simple. And you know, now I know that's a terrible thing to build a crawler out of. And this thing was just absolute garbage um, and crashed and crashed and crashed. And, um, and he had these offices that sounded like he was outside on the street with cars hooting, but somehow was inside and toilets were being flushed over his head. 
at the same time. And a call with him would last for about 45 seconds before the line would quit. <laughs> uh, anyway, fast forward six years, he has over 100 people now. He has offices that look like an investment bank. He's gone from three people to over 100. Over half of them either work for me or for people that I've recommended. Mm -hmm. uh, being just absolutely amazing. Uh, so that's that was very good. And then US team, you know, mainly we got them just by accident. You know, we hired. A, there's a was a time we were just growing so fast. You didn't have time to manage things. You just hire people and see how they do. And there's lots of people that interview very well, but then turn out to be horrible. So we got this guy who actually didn't interview well at all. He did amazingly well with the technical test and then just flunked the interviews. And I hired him just because we needed an extra person. And when you're dealing with people, I usually try and get two people for each job because one of them will fail. Um, so... Uh, <laughs> The guy I thought would be good turned out not to be, and the guy I thought probably not turned out to be great. Um, so we got them, and you know, it's it's a it's a trial and error, and we have this amazing system called Teamwork. Um, it's like a global shared to do list, and I hire people and I put them on Teamwork and I give them tasks, and if they do well, I give them more tasks, and if they're not doing well, I take tasks off them and I give them to someone else. So you're continually being kind of soft hired and soft fired. And then, you know, eventually the people that really don't do well will, will run out of tasks. And they'll say, do you have anything else? Is that well, I'll let you know. And uh, <laughs> it's very cool because you don't ever have to fire anybody. They just run out of tasks because they weren't very good. And then the superstars, you continue giving them more and more and more. Uh, so, so that's been really good. And it's helped keep us coordinated. And, uh, and it's great because it meant, you know, with the work from home stuff, we just haven't missed a big. As far as I understand, you're kind of um, started with outsourcing the technical part and what actually um, happened to be quite uh, quite good for your business. Uh, how was your experience? Did you find any issues with that? What was the main obstacle and what went well that you didn't expect? What was your general experience with outsourcing? Well, I mean, practically everything is outsourced. I mean, we don't technically have any employees at all. You know, mm -hmm. nine people work on this thing in 12 countries, but there's no, even I'm not, and quote, unquote, an employee. So everybody is outsourced, and you hire people, and then you see how they go, and some do well and some don't, uh, and you get some guys that are just great, and you keep giving them more and more stuff. In, in the beginning, we had two teams out in India. Um, mm -hmm. We had the, the guy that was coding on the street, and then we had this, you know, supposedly very professional company. They had 650 employees and they were more expensive and they would send us these just ridiculous invoices every month. Uh, I had this call once for, um, from their CFO uh, asking why we paid them late. I said, well, we have vendors and they all get paid end of month, same day. We pay you about a month late because it takes us that long to check your invoice and get it correct. <laughs> so you build us the stuff you haven't done, you build us the stuff you've already built us for, and you know nonsense like this, if you sent me accurate invoices, I could pay you same day. Uh, but he never got the hang of sending an accurate invoice, so uh, you know, eventually you know, he just, they were one of those people that got stuck with no tasks. Um, but for the most part, it's it's, 
it's good. You know, um, it's like having an employee. You know, sometimes they're great and sometimes they're not. But there's a lot more flexibility to it. And I just like the fact that I can run my business just by putting tasks on teamwork, and someone somewhere picks them up and starts ticking them off. Yeah, that's great. And the next question is actually about some future trends. What you could suggest about artificial intelligence and big data in legislation, how it can or cannot change the game. What's your opinion? We're talking legislation, which is rulemaking or litigation, which is... Litigation. Pardon me, pardon me. Just misspoken. <laughs> no problem. Well, you know, there's good answers for both. Um, I mean, in general, lawyers have resisted technology. And this is why legal tech companies fail. Uh, I had this one guy once who came to me and he was saying, you know, I've got this system and it will schedule depositions and, and document productions all done on the system. So there's a record of everyone who got each document and what needs to be provided. And so that's a great idea. Said, oh, thank you. I said, no one's going to buy that. <laughs> and said, why? I said, because it's going to save time and money. And he's like, yeah, I was like, but lawyers don't want it to go quickly. They like it to go slow, so they make more money. <laughs> you, you will cost them money. They can never tell you that, but that is the bottom line. They will never, ever, ever buy that product. And, uh, and they haven't. Uh, I said, if you want to get that done, you've got to get the court system to mandate it. That's the only way that will fly. And... People uh, forever, you know, they're dreamers in this sector. They come up with an idea. They think it could change things and make things better, which it would do. But that's precisely why no one will buy it. Mm -hmm. um, so we found out very early on, as, you know, we thought lawyers would buy this because they want to win. Was, nah, actually, they don't. They really don't care. They want to build. There's some plaintiff lawyers who like to win, but they don't like to buy the software because they figure they don't need it and they you already know. Mm -hmm. um, And every lawyer thinks that they're the best. Uh, that said, you know, technology eventually catches up with people. And in today's corona environment, things like getting together in person and pieces of paper are verboten. Um, so people are starting to have to use these systems. You know, my girlfriend is a lawyer and the just junk tech they have at her firm, they still have a, a server room there. <laughs> they haven't gone into the cloud and she has to use log me in to log into her computer at the office and work it from there and every now and then she'll have to call someone up and say can you jiggle my mouse have you not heard of google docs and google drive and all this is up in the cloud now and you know it's really expensive antiquated stuff and but You know, we're seeing this massive uptick in business where people realize the old ways of doing things don't work when you have to be remote. Uh, so there is a drive to adopt more technology and people are cobbling together Zoom meetings you know, with the judge and opposing counsel. And you know, after you've done it for a few times, well, it's actually not terribly complicated. And in many ways, it's a lot easier than before. Uh, My girlfriend's billing has gone up was 19.75% since working from home. And lots of people I'm talking to are like, you know, we're thinking we might not go back to the office because it's better and it's easier this way. Yeah, you've actually predicted my next question about uh, the coronavirus. 
about how it changes uh, the industry, maybe some other observations or maybe your forecasts, how, how it will end up. Will people come back to offices or won't they? How it's going to be in your opinion? Um, I, I think it's going to be mixed. You know, some will and some won't. Uh, you know, there's advantages if you are good at using tech. Uh, we see as well, it's just a change in how people think. Mm -hmm. uh, when they're in the offices, they have this group think, and we've done it this way for the last 30 years, so it, you know, we don't need to change it. And now they're realizing, okay, I can't, you know, go and stick a post-it note on Joe's desk. Uh, we need to kind of communicate digitally and some of these systems really aren't all that great. And can we change them? And if you're going to change them, well, let's change them to something that's actually decent. And, and then before you, know, you get all these people on the phone and then they'd all just sit there and issue spot and, uh, you know, how do we find problems with this so we don't have to do anything. And now it's different. Now they actually want to learn about it. And they're saying, could you fix this? Could you fix that? Can you do other things that you're not telling us? Um, well, yes, we could. We could build that for you if you would like. And they're like, oh, that's exciting. And you know, they're starting to see a different future. Uh, so it's, it's been a lot better. And people are making decisions much faster, mm -hmm. uh, which has been good. I mean, we have partner now with two of the big three legal data providers um, who like to get data from us rather than get it in turn. <laughs> um, uh, and, you know, we had to sign off by the CF CEO in five hours. You know, it's unheard of. They just can't move that fast normally. Uh, and there's a lot of senior people are sitting at home and they're kind of bored. So they'll take exploratory calls a lot quicker than otherwise they would. Mm -hmm. Okay, I see this. Actually, if we go back, uh, as far as I understand, Premonition was founded in uh, 2014, like six years ago. Mm -hmm. And you, as one of co-founders, probably have a huge experience of things that you shouldn't be doing when you're a startup. Could you share this with our audience? What were the worst mistakes you, you ever made and how to avoid them? Oh, jeez. I don't think this show's long enough to listen to uh, all my mistakes. And yeah, people say, oh, it's wonderful, all this stuff that you've done. And I looked at your LinkedIn profile and it's so impressive. No, no, no. So yeah, but I don't have to put all the stuff I failed at on there. And it's, it's by doing things and failing at them that you learn. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the problems with MBAs and things is they are not taught about failure. Um, mm -hmm. I get entire talk about it once because there's this myth that if you do everything with this right kind of business recipe, that you're guaranteed to be successful. And you're not. It's That was a recipe that worked for one person in one industry at a point of time, and your mileage may vary. And there are, there are things that I tried and failed at initially that would actually work if I did them again now, hmm. because the market has moved on. Uh, one of my failures as an entrepreneur is I'm always ahead of my time. And I got lucky with Premonition. It's one of the best timed businesses that I've ever done. If I started it six months later, it wouldn't have worked. If I started it six months before, it wouldn't have worked. Often I'll do businesses that are 20 years ahead of mm. where the market you know, eventually catches up. Other other failures and things. We were lucky. We identified fairly early 
that lawyers weren't going to be interested in this and taking a different approach. Doing dashboards for everything was a really good idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if you can't measure something, then you can't manage it and you can't then tell when it's broken later. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that's been um, good for us. I think you know, just admitting when you're wrong is a really useful skill. There's so many people who just have this mindset of I must be right all the time. And A, it's wrong, and B, it makes you look stupid. And I had uh, one of our marketing guys, we're going over website conversions, and he told me I was using the wrong metric. I should be using unique conversions. I said, oh, okay. And uh, apparently he asked the team afterwards, you know, was that okay? You know, am I allowed to tell Toby he's wrong? Toby has no problem being wrong as long as he's wrong. (laughs) And I want to hear about it because... I like being wrong because it means I learned something and, and I saved some money. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that's an important thing too. Uh, and, you know, technology, there are lots of kind of false starts we made. Uh, for example, the building the crawler in Java initially was just a stupid idea. And it's because I didn't know. Uh, but after a while, you know, you have to build an environment. Okay. That was a big leap forward for us. Uh, then we had issues where we're essentially building a new crawler for every website. And I realized, you know, doing thousands, that ain't going to scale. And then we realized it just, we weren't able to configure it fast enough. So we built a version that would learn how to crawl a website. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then we were kind of putting it in, you know, offline databases. And then, you know, we realized we need to move it into the cloud. And then we start with the various analytics things and we need a cloud-based analytics tool. And then I had a thing where I realized that we had about a dozen different reports, you know, a judge report, a lawyer report, a law firm report. And depending on how much usage they were getting, they would be developed at different rates. Mm-hmm. And Nathan said to me, why don't we do something that's like a big unified, why don't we start doing something that can, like Lego, where we have modules and we can assemble them all. So, you know, we would have to rewrite everything that we have ever done from scratch. And he's like, yeah, I thought about it for about two minutes and said, yeah, you're right, we need to do it. So we actually just bought everything. And you know, it took a little while to build this new thing, but it enabled us to go so much quicker. And then we had we wound up dumping that for an even better idea down the road. Uh, but you know, don't be afraid to dump stuff just because you have these kind of legacy costs in it. That's some great advice. And what came up into my mind, you were talking about analytics and stuff. What are the best tools you've used, like uh, founder, like uh, um, chief innovation officer? What tools would you recommend for, for someone in your position or for someone who is starting a startup? On analytics, I really couldn't tell you. <laughs> Maybe not analytics, generally, generally, like the tools that you would really recommend to have in your position. Okay. Um, so... I think Amazon Web Services is really good. Uh, mm-hmm. So we have everything on that. Uh, I truly love uh, Teamwork. It's not the only solution out there, but I really like how that runs. Mm-hmm. Uh, we try to do everything on Google if we can. So Google Mail, Google Calendar. Um, Calendly is very useful. So see people can see when you're available and mm-hmm. we'll automatically stick it in the calendar and we'll book a meetup slot as well. So those are all, all excellent. Uh, 
text expanders is huge. I use text expanders all the time. And the number of times you have to type kind regards Toby in a day is insane. So I type KRT and it expands into kind regards common Toby. And I have text expanders for huge amounts of things. Thank you for your email. Thank you for your introduction. Nice to meet you. And you can just buzz through email very quickly for that. Uh, and just in terms of you know, into communication, I'm not a big fan of Slack. I think that wastes mm -hmm. as much time as it solves. Uh, so we just use uh, Skype uh, for mm -hmm. just messages back and forth. Um, trying to think of other good apps. Those are probably the uh, the main ones. Um, and then sometimes occasionally just for my daily to-dos, pad and paper. I, I have a kind of notepad that I've you know, custom made with you know, what, what action I need to take and what the priority is and... Mm -hmm and what the action actually is, and it kind of helps you group it and knock out the important ones first. Uh, that's worked pretty well for me. Um, and it sounds really stupid, but uh, goal shoot. I thought for ages, you know, goal, that sounds a bit Tony Robbins. I'm not really think that's a good idea. I mean, I read that 80% of all millionaires have a written goal shoot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, maybe I should... Just try it to humor myself. I have 15 minutes to spare right now. So I sat down and I wrote it out and I saw I had a goal of growing my business at that time. And then I had a, which was in the UK, and then I had another goal of moving to the States. And I'm like, well, I can't do both because those are mutually exclusive. I need to pick one because they were actually fighting each other. And I never would have noticed that if I hadn't put it down on a piece of paper. And then after a while, you know, you start to make very specific, actionable goals. You know, I want to be rich or I want to be famous. It's not a goal. You know, it needs to have a deadline and specific, actionable, measurable stuff. And after a while, it gets to be like a Christmas list of Santa Claus. And you write down what you want and you review it twice a day and it gets done. It's, uh, it's really quite cool. Uh, so, so that's been big for me. I take my five-year goals and break them down into what can I work on this month, then this week, and then today. Okay, that's great. And actually, uh, you talked about uh, growth plans, and uh, I'm a marketeer very intrigued about uh, uh, all stuff that worked for, for someone. What was like your best idea in that helped you to grow your business, uh, like in marketing or, I don't know, in some promotion, advertisement, etc.? Ooh. Well, we had a one particular breakthrough. Last year I was running a consumer side, like a, a kind of law, law, a lawyer recommendation service for mm -hmm. the consumer market. And we made a number of breakthroughs in marketing for that. Uh, so, for example, a, a, we were able to do a thing called custom audience where you upload a bunch of names and you say, I only want these people to get these ads. So a standard law firm would have a good ad, would have a 3% click-through rate. Mm -hmm. I was running one which got 19.89. Oh, wow. Um, just because I'm shooting fish in a barrel that has no water in it. And then I worked out a ultra-long-tail, ultra-low-cost strategy for Google AdWords, mm -hmm. uh, which... Typical law firm will spend $200 to generate a lead, and I was doing it for $6. Oh, wow. How, how, how did you do it? Well, that, that's kind of secret sauce, but I generated an ultra-long tail of 
the kind of things that people would be typing in. Because mm -hmm. uh, the problem with Google, with AdWords, is most search queries, 50% of search queries have never been done before mm -hmm. and will never be done again. Uh, so if, you know, even knowing that at some point someone will type this in is not terribly helpful because they'll only do it once, ever. <laughs> um, so I calculated 61.2 million key phrases and uploaded them into AdWords and we broke AdWords. AdWords has a 5 million key phrase limit per account and we broke it. Uh, I've never come across anyone that knew that ever, even before or since. Um, so that's what, the, uh, that's what the keyword limit is for AdWords. So we then had to take that break it down over many different accounts. Mm -hmm. Right now, I have some of my crew working on, um, you can manage AdWords via API. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, you know, that number, you just you cannot do that manually. Oh, uh, no. Yeah, the bots being able to put them up, edit them, copy, uh, make changes, and uh, marketing-type changes, uh, you know, one of the issues with AdWords that they don't like, you can't target on a county basis. Mm. And that's problematic because the courts run on a county basis. Uh, so I've had this kind of brain like, ah, you can do zip though, and we know which postal codes are in which counties. Mm -hmm. So just say, make this copy of this uh, for Los Angeles, California, and take these zip codes that are in Los Angeles, California, and target to that. So now I can do county level targeting because I've kind of mimicked it, even though that feature doesn't exist. So it's great. Yeah. So just, you know, stuff like that. And then you can do all this clever stuff with um, device ID targeting now. Mm -hmm. So I can go and add to you, it'll hit your cable box. Your neighbor will never see it. I could also send it to your iPad, but your wife will never see it. Mm -hmm. uh, it just goes to you. Um, so there's, Lots of clever new marketing ways that if you string them all together, you can get just amazing results. Uh, marketing is very difficult. Well, it took us a long time to get marketing right because it's just it's changed since when I started business 25 years ago. You know, it's well more than that, nearly 30 now, and it's forever changing all the time. It's very fast. Uh, there's there's no good. There's no one person who's a great marketer anymore. You know, there'll be people that get someone and all they do is Cora or something like that. And they're yep. extremely specialized and you just really got to hold them to account. Um, I ran competitions for a while where I'd just get, I'd go online and I'd go on Upwork and I'd say, this is what I want. And I want, if you want to compete for this business, I want screenshots showing your actual results. This is the matrix I want to see of what you've done before. Mm -hmm. And you get like three to five people and you just run them off against each other. And you would be amazed a lot of the so-called experts just are absolute garbage. But there will be, you know, a rock star will come out of that process. And um, I mean, you use them for as long as you can because, you know, unfortunately, good people wander off and do other things sometimes. As it happens. What I also wanted to, to ask, like, you're a co-founder, a chief innovation officer of start of successful startup and a success, successful business. And like your 
responsible for bringing innovations into your business? What helps you to do that? Where do you get fresh ideas and inspiration? That is a very good question. Uh, it's something that I hadn't really thought about. Uh, and most people that I kind of gave myself title of chief innovation officer, because uh, I like coming up with new things. That's what excites me. But most people that have that title, they, they really don't do that. They just go out and they look for other people that are doing things and make introductions internally. And they yeah. have no responsibility for actually getting it done. There's a very good book called Range, uh, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. And I'm mm -hmm. a generalist. Uh, I'm expert at practically nothing. Uh, but I know quite a lot about very diverse areas. And innovation is not complicated at all. You just take something from another area and see if it works in yours. Uh, or you might take a couple of things from two different areas and apply it somewhere very different. This is why people that are so-called experts in certain fields, they rarely come up with breakthroughs. The breakthrough nearly always comes from someone that's in a completely different area that applies knowledge that they've just never had before, you know, like mm -hmm. Gray in aging. He's a computer scientist. He knew nothing about biology. He got a college textbook and read it. That's how he came up with his ideas. But he takes tools from another area and then reapplies. So I'm often doing things like that and then just asking questions that most people wouldn't. So, you know, what would Elon Musk do? What would a caveman do? What would uh, Tony Soprano do? Um, had a, a legal thing once and there just was, the lawyer wasn't coming up with good solutions and I couldn't think of any from a legal perspective. And I started thinking, you know, what, what would Tony Soprano do? Was Tony Soprano would have a guy killed. That yes, it would. Okay, well, I don't really want to kill people, but why did that work? And it, it works because if he's dead, he can't exercise certain powers. So, ah, well, what are there ways that we can kind of mimic that where those powers can't be exercised? And I'm like, well, actually, I can think of five different ways of doing that. So that's what we did. Uh, and it's just from coming at the problem from a completely different perspective enables you to think in a completely different way. You know, people talk about thinking outside the box, and I really hate that phrase, because to me, I've never had a box. Um, and I, I never have these constraints. Uh, and a lot of the time, I'll come up with ideas like, you know, legal analytics and scraping the entire court system. And I didn't know that they're not possible. <laughs> so, so that's why I did them. Um, so it's all kinds of stuff like that, and I read or, you know, I read an entire subject and then I read everything around it and then I read very disparate things. Like right now I'm reading this, it's like the Bible of filmmaking. And I've mm -hmm. done quite a bit of film and television, but I realized I knew it from a practical perspective, but I knew very little about theory of filmmaking. And now I'm reading about all these different lenses and I mean, it's, there's a lot to it and I knew nothing about. Uh, but I like these kind of things because you get ideas and then you realize they have some relevance to something you're currently working on right now. Yeah, so like HBO series is something that is very important for innovation. <laughs> exactly, yes. Yeah. Okay, yeah, and probably my last question for today, actually, We've been talking about this a bit, but uh, what, in terms of technology, what tendencies and trends do you predict to boom in the nearest future in your industry? Oof. Um, I wouldn't say necessarily that law 
is is a very good industry to watch for technical innovation. Mm -hmm. There is little innovation in law. Um, when I'm asked to give a speech on legal innovation, I always put the innovation in speech marks because you know we call it that, but it's not really. We you know we pretend that there is innovation. A lot of the things that I do is we take our our data and we apply it in different fields. Uh, so, for example, the insurance industry is a major user of our data, and we've taken case types and mapped them into insurance industry lines of business like automobile, director's liability, and so on and so forth. So now they can look at it from a risk perspective. And then I've built lots and lots of tools for internal use. Uh, for example, you know we had a CRM, uh, then customer relationship management, basically a glorified um, contacts book and note keeping. Uh, but then we needed to integrate it with our system, and that didn't particular CRM we used didn't work. So we went and we bought Salesforce, and then we found that Salesforce Salesforce doesn't really work. You can't just use it out of the box, and Salesforce developers are insanely expensive, even in India. And and then a lot of the time it doesn't work, and the tables fall out of sync, and all kinds of nonsense like that. You've got to go to all various third parties. Even just you have to go to a third party to get. Uh, email integration so when you send an email that email will appear in your mm -hmm. salesforce and then that will fall out a single time and our developers just hated dealing with it so we wind up doing our own tables and then you sync the tables over to salesforce it's an easier way of doing it because your internal tables will always work whereas salesforce's ones often won't uh, i mean after a while I realized, well, we have all of the back end of Salesforce now. We have replicated all of it. If I just built a front end, I could turn off Salesforce and we don't need it anymore. So essentially, we wound up with our own version of Salesforce. <laughs> to me, I made it better. Uh, so we do things like Salesforce, you have to enter the company before you can enter a contact. So you have to enter a company and then you, the contact has to go into that company. Mm -hmm. And if the company is something like Acme, well, what is that? Acme Group, Acme Inc, Acme LLC, Acme Corp. Don't know. So you guess it, you're probably going to get it wrong. With my thing, it's simple. I go to LinkedIn, I look the guy up, I get a copy of his URL, paste it into our system, click add, and it will just suck all the details down and your photo will be the only bio and, and you know what company you work for. And then you get the URL of the company, that's a unique identifier. So that's taken 15 seconds to do as opposed to 10, 15 minutes. Uh, just lots of stuff like that where we're just going to wound up building our own thing. And then I added lots of automation to it. So you can just do one click and very complicated, very lengthy things can be done with a click. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's just going to be business uh, that people are going to look to see, you know, like I've done. If we have something repetitive or we have something very boring or we have something that's very detail orientated, Computers are much better at doing that than humans are. And there's just going to be more and more and more of that uh, in in life, really. Uh, but, you know, there will be large amounts of technological unemployment, but I don't worry about it terribly much because most people actually don't like their jobs. And the great thing about robotics and automation and all that kind of stuff is there will be abundance and things will get very, very cheap. You know, what you see in... TVs now, I was looking at getting a 75-inch television. I can get a brand new one for $700. You know, that's mm -hmm. insane. But when 
tech starts taking things over and they start to get digitized and dematerialized. And Peter Diamandis writes really good stuff about this. They just become incredibly good and incredibly cheap very quickly. So, you know, I, I'm kind of an optimist about things. I, I think that uh, tech will save the day. Yeah, that's a great uh, thing to finish uh, our podcast with. Toby, thank you for having this great conversation. It actually was a great pleasure to talk with you. Thank you very much for, uh, for having me. It's been fun. See you. Bye. Great. Very good. Good seeing you. Take care.